Everybody, what's up? It's time to get back to the book of Luke today. Uh, we took a week off for our Thanksgiving sermon, uh, but we're going to do the beginning of Luke chapter 7. So if you want to grab your Bibles, fire up your apps, uh, you know, uh, we'll get ready to jump into this text, the first couple of verses here of Luke chapter 10. Uh, let me just open us up in prayer. Lord, today we're going to talk about faith and um, how faith is a gift from you, and I just pray that you would use this sermon to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our trust in you, and to strengthen our love for you. And so we thank you that we, uh, thousands of years after this was written, can can study it together and can talk about the truths that you've revealed to us. And so I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would really light this text up in our in our minds and in our hearts. Amen. So 2020, right? It's coming to an end. We're getting near the end. Uh, it's been a pretty rough year for most of us, I would say. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's kind of on par with life, right? Life can be rough. Um, I watch a lot of TED Talks. I like TED Talks. Um, and people have a lot of ideas in these different TED Talks about how to get through life. You know, how to make your life better, how to get through the tough parts of life. And they have tips for, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, different people think different aspects will make your life ultimately fulfilled, right? You need better relationships. You need, there's a lot of TED Talks about how to be more fulfilled at work, um, how to earn more money, how to, how to change your perspective. You know, I've seen some of those, you know, if you just look at things differently, change your outlook, your life will be better. Uh, one guy even had one. Uh, the, he said the key to understanding is to look at the world um, through the eyes of math uh, and use math to, to look at things from different perspectives. And, you know, while math is great, although let's be real, I'm terrible at math and I barely passed every math class I ever took. As soon as they started using letters in math, I got really confused. I thought math was numbers, but I guess I'm wrong. Um, but so he was saying, you know, if we look at the world through the eyes of math, we can you know, we can uh, um, be, I don't know, he didn't say ultimately fulfilled, but things will be better, right? But, you know, I don't think math can live up to the hype. What is it? What, what am I saying? What do we need? I think we need faith. I think faith is the most important, right, of all these things that we shared. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian era preacher, he said this, little faith will bring your soul to heaven. Great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And I like that because a lot of people think of faith as something where we we believe something, you know, like I always say, fire insurance, right? It's just we believe something and we struggle through this life so that we can eventually get to eternity where things will be better. And, you know, that is true, but that's little faith, right? But what Spurgeon is saying is a great faith impacts your life in the here and now. And so today we're going to see an example of great faith from a very unlikely source, um, a Roman centurion. And we're going to see Jesus, it will even say marvels at this man's faith. So let's take a look for a minute and uh, let's, let's walk through the passage and then let's talk about it. So we're going to start here in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So now the Sermon on the Plain is over. We had the Sermon or the Sermon on the Mount, it's called in Matthew, and we talked about whether or not that's the same sermon. Uh, but he's done with this sermon, right? The Kingdom Manifesto. And so he comes down and he heads back home. He heads to Capernaum, a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum was sort of Jesus' home base for most of the beginning part of uh, his ministry, his Galilean ministry. This was sort of his, his home his home base, right, for his public ministry. 
Um, it was like his adopted hometown. Now, he's in Capernaum, verse 2. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So the main character of our story is this centurion. Now let me explain to you how the Roman um, army was organized. Uh, the army was organized into what's called legions. You may have seen that in Ben-Hur movies or, you know, that sort of thing. You may have seen it on the History Channel. Um, a legion was a group of 6,000 men, 6,000 soldiers. The legions then were divided into groups of what they called cohorts. Cohorts were 600 men. So each legion had 10 cohorts of 600 men. Then those cohorts were divided up into six groups of a hundred, and those groups were led by centurions, right? Century, centurion, you see that? And so about a hundred people. Um, and so a legion ha was this, this big group in the army had 60 centurions in it. And so centurions were generally not upper class, uh, you know, the, the high up in society people. They were the regular guys who worked themselves up. And generally, if you not always, but if you started as a as a low-ranking soldier, centurion was about as high as you could hope to go without being part of like the noble class or, you know, being high up in society. And so here we have this centurion. Luke does not say much about him. Um, when I was reading, what one of the things I read was that there probably wasn't a lot of Roman soldiers there in Galilee at this time. There was no legion here uh, of six thousand, you know, uh, men stationed in Galilee. That'd be complete overkill. Um, and so who was this centurion? This guy may have been a Roman centurion, uh, you know, in the Roman army. And there was just a couple of soldiers here. He may have been a Roman centurion who worked uh, for Herod Antipas, you know, the sort of puppet king of Rome, uh, for Rome of Israel. Uh, and part of his like uh, secret service or his soldiers, his guard. Or he may have been a retired Roman centurion who at one point was stationed in Israel, and as we'll see, kind of fell in love with the area and, uh, you know, stayed. Maybe he works for Herod. We don't really know. But he's a Roman centurion. Um, uh, and he has this servant. Now, the servant in uh, in our text, that's what it says, right? Uh, yeah, he had a servant. If you look at the footnote, though, in the ESV, there's a little two there. It says Greek bond servant. Um so this is a little tricky, right? Because the the Greek word here, and I think we've actually talked about this before, but the Greek word here actually means slave, bond, servant, slave. Okay. And so one of the reasons that they kind of pretty that up in the English Bible is it, as soon as you see the word slave, it puts people off, obviously, with good reason, right? Um, but there's a few things we need to say about slavery in the Roman world as we're reading through here. Um, the first is that slavery was not racial in the Roman world like it was, um, you know, in the South uh, here in America. Um, so slavery was not permanent uh, in, in the Roman world. Often slaves could save up money and buy their freedom. Uh, it was often voluntary. So a lot of times if you owed somebody money, instead of paying them back, you would become their slave for seven years or whatever it is. And at the end you were released. Um, but the other thing is like when we read about people in the scriptures who owned slaves or whatever, you know, this goes to for like the multiple wives thing. What we're reading about is real, actual people who were sinful and imperfect, living in their fallen and broken cultures. And so for us, 2,000 years later, to look back and say, well, I'm not going to learn anything from that guy because he had blind spots in his culture is ridiculous because we have blind spots in our culture too. And so slavery was not exactly the same kind of slavery that we think about uh, when we hear the word slavery. But at the same time, the Roman world was a brutal place. And... Um, 
this guy, the centurion, he was a part of that brutal culture. And uh, slaves were not, you know, it wasn't exactly the same as slavery here, but slaves were not highly valued. Um, Aristotle, who lived years before this uh, in the Greek period, you know, earlier than Roman times, he said that slaves were, um, he called them living tools. Um, the Roman legal scholar Gaius, he talked about how the master had absolute authority over life and death of, of a slave. And so um, you could, in the Roman world, if a slave burns your toast, you could have that slave crucified and nobody would blink an eye. Nobody would have cared. Um, another Roman author, Vero, said that the only difference between a slave, an animal, and a cart was that the slave could talk. And so this was a brutal world that these people lived in where, where life was not as precious as it is to us now. Death was very commonplace. And they were, let's be real, they were not nice people, um, even to the, you know, especially to their slaves. And so slaves were often abused physically. And beatings for slaves was very common. Um, and then one of the more disturbing things is that slaves were abused sexually as well. And um, there was a huge problem in the Roman world with pedophilia and slaves. And there was a whole market for this. Um, and so slavery was brutal in the ancient world, even though it was not exactly the same thing as it, as what we have uh, today. And so slaves were not highly valued. Slaves were thought of as low. But this centurion, right, it says here he, he loved this slave it was who was highly valued by him. So often what would happen is there was a lot of the brutal slavery, but a lot of the slavery in the Roman world was that kind of bond servanthood where somebody would sell themselves into service, into your family because they owed you money or whatever it was. And a lot of times what happened was that 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 person would become almost part of the family. Uh, they, they worked in the ancient world more in clans than we do now. And that seems to be the idea here. Highly valued does not mean um, well, if this slave dies, then my business is hurt, right? What he means here, they, the reason they don't translate it love is because in Greek, it's not the word love, but it's the same idea. This is a real affection. This hard man, this Roman military officer, this soldier, right? The first thing we learn about him is that he has a heart. And so let's see what he does with that heart. Verse three, <clears throat> when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So in Matthew, if you read the parallels, right, a lot of these stories show up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you know, uh, they show up in different places. If you read the parallel in Matthew, you'll see that the centurion went himself. And a lot of folks will say, well, this is a blatant contradiction, right? Here he sends this group, there he goes himself. So what's going on? <clears throat> is it this big contradiction? No, it's not. We do this too. Imagine for a second that you or, you know, somebody, let's just say somebody, um, is arrested of a crime and uh, goes to court and is sitting at the table. The lawyer stands up in court and the judge says, how do you plead? And the lawyer says, not guilty, your honor, you know, and whatever. The next day, the newspapers are writing about the crime and it says, so-and-so pleaded not guilty. Well, did he? No, he just sat there. He was quiet. Somebody else pleaded on his behalf, but we talk about it the same way. That's the same idea, right? Um, and especially in the ancient world, things were a lot more fuzzy in the way that they wrote and so in the way that they transmitted information. And so for Matthew to say, oh, the guy went and for Luke to say, oh, he sent these people to go on his behalf is basically the same thing. So it's not this big, giant Bible contradiction. So who, who is the lawyer for the centurion in this case? Who did he send on his behalf? He sent the elders of the Jews, leaders of a local 
uh, synagogue of the probably the synagogue here in Capernaum. And these guys uh, were you were if you remember from the the sermon where Jesus um, went to his hometown synagogue. Um, we talked about how a lot of what we do from church comes from the synagogue, and so they would have a, you know, they'd have a synagogue building, which we'll read about in a second, um, and they had sort of a group of pastors, a group of elders. These are the guys who who the centurion sends on his behalf, and they show up and they ask him, they ask Jesus to heal the centurion's servant. Now Jesus's reputation at this point is so set in stone, everybody believes that he can do it. Everybody believes, okay, you need somebody healed, you go to Jesus right? Uh, the question then is not, can he heal the servant? The question is, will he heal the servant? And so these elders, they start with the convincing. They got to make their case to Jesus for him to come, or at least they think they do, for him to come and to heal um, the, the Roman centurion servant or the Roman centurion slave. All right, verse four and five. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. They plead earnestly. The scene is almost um, almost comical when you really think about what's going on here. This man is A, a Gentile, B, a Roman centurion, a part of the occupying Roman force, right? The hated Romans. And here are the leaders of the Jewish uh, religion, right? The leaders, the pastors, we would say in our culture in Capernaum, and they're pleading for Jesus to come and do this favor for him because they say he is worthy. So what do they mean when they say he's worthy? What has he done um, for them to think he's worthy for Jesus, for you to do this favor for him? Well, they list uh, two things. The first thing they say is, um, he loves our nation, which is a really weird thing to hear a bunch of Jewish religious leaders say about a Roman centurion. And um, we've talked a bunch before about how the Jewish folks hated the Romans. They were the, this occupying force and they were brutal uh, to the Jewish people. But the reverse was true, too. The Romans hated the Jewish people. They thought of them as this uh, unsophisticated, backwards, religious nut jobs, right? Um, they needed Israel in their empire because um, if you look at a map of Israel, all the roads for the basically the whole Middle East run through this peninsula here, through Israel. It's a strategic location. But the people who lived in Israel, they hated their guts. And it all actually came to uh, um, this big uh, you know, hoopla or whatever in um, the late 60s with the Jewish revolt. And then Rome came in and they absolutely crushed the nation of Israel and they destroyed the temple and they kicked them all out. It was a whole thing, right? So this does eventually bubble up. There's a lot of hatred here on both sides. But this centurion, this member of the Roman army, this the occupying force, um, he loves the nation. He loves the people. Um, he's probably what... Uh, what we call God, he was probably a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer was a guy who uh, loved the Jewish religion, believed in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, but became a believer later in life and so didn't want to get circumcised. Um, if you don't know what that is, Google it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't Google that. Uh, but basically, that's a painful procedure for any guy to go through, and he didn't want to do it. And so he was a respecter of the Jewish religion, but he wasn't officially a part of it because he hadn't been circumcised. So that's the first thing, right? He loves our nation. The second thing is uh, he built the synagogue, right? And so synagogues, like I said, we take a lot of what we do from church from the pattern of a synagogue. 
And uh, this synagogue in Capernaum, actually, I think the archaeologists have even found the one from about this time. So you can actually see pictures. Maybe I'll try to find one. I don't know. I think there's pictures of the synagogue here in Capernaum. Um, And he paid to have this building put up, right? Because he's a God-fearer, because he loves the nation, and he's, he's a part of the community. Part of me wonders, and I have absolutely no proof to back this up, if this centurion was at one point part of the Roman occupying force, And when it came time for him to retire, instead of moving back home, he stayed in Israel where he had been stationed because he fell in love um, with the people. Now, uh, you know, I don't know. That's just a guess. But anyway, um, so this is the view of this centurion from the eyes of the religious leaders, of these Jewish elders. Um, He's worthy. He's a really good guy. But his view of himself is a little bit different. Look at this. Look at uh, verse, let's see, what are we doing? Six through eight. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this this section, verse 6, opens up, and Jesus went with them. This is amazing. Entering a Gentile's house under almost any circumstances was a complete and utter super no-no for any religious um, Jewish person. And we've talked about before, and we'll talk about this more in more detail next week, but the idea of clean and unclean, um, ritually pure, ritually impure. And going into the house of a Gentile would have made Jesus ritually impure, would have made him unclean. Um, but he just takes off. He goes, right? He's going to go. Because with Jesus, it's not, uh, and like I said, we'll get into this in detail next week. It's not that things make him unclean. It's that he makes things clean. And so he heads to this Gentile's house. And my guess is he would have walked right in. Um, I wish the centurion hadn't stopped him um, because I really would have loved to see what would have happened if he had gone in. That would have been a great story. But anyway, the centurion, uh, he he sends this group. So while Jesus is on the way, I think the centurion, knowing the religion and knowing these Jewish customs, thought about it and realized, I've just asked a rabbi to come to my house to heal somebody, uh, to heal my servant. And so uh, he sends another group, a second delegation, right, uh, with a second message. Don't bother. I'm unworthy. It's the same word as verse 4. They think he's worthy. He thinks he's unworthy. And that right there is real humility, right? They thought he was worthy. He knew he wasn't. And so, um, I love it. We'll talk about that more uh, at the end of the sermon too. But just you see his heart, you see his attitude. He says, look, I'm not worthy, but here's the deal, Jesus. You don't need to come into my house. Uh, You can heal from anywhere. And he talks here about authority. And this whole section about where he goes, look, Jesus, I get it. I'm a guy who has authority. I have soldiers who work for me, a hundred of them actually. And when I say to that guy, go do this thing, he goes and he does it. He doesn't ask me. And when I say to this other guy, get over here, he comes over, right? He understands the idea of authority. And do you see what he is saying about Jesus? He's saying that you command death the way that I command soldiers. And there's a lot of unspoken assumptions just in that statement. Mainly, Jesus is more than just some guy. He has cosmic authority. He he has the authority that only God is supposed to have. And so he says at the end of this, look, just say the word 
and let my servant be healed. There's no doubt in his mind that Jesus doesn't even have to come over to heal this guy. He can just do it uh, from afar. It's absolutely amazing. And that's why Jesus says in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned to the crowd that followed him and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. Only twice in the Gospels does it say that Jesus marvels. Is this, is this Greek word used about Jesus? Uh, the first is in Nazareth, in the book of Mark. It says, he marvels at the faith, the, uh, sorry, the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. And here it says he marvels at, his, at the faith of who, though? This is the crazy part. A Gentile soldier. And this is an amazing statement. Now, I haven't found faith like this anywhere among the people of God. Now, notice what Jesus, look at what carefully what Jesus says. He doesn't say, going around Israel, I haven't found faith yet. He's not saying, I found no faith among the people of God. But in comparison, this guy, this Roman Gentile soldier, blows away everybody else's faith. And that's a major theme that we've talked about in the book of Luke. Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. And if you remember who the book of Luke was written to was a Gentile. It was Theophilus, probably some Roman official who um, had become a believer or was interested in becoming a believer. And uh, Luke writes this book to convince him or, you know, to strengthen his faith, whatever it was. And so here he is, the hero of the story of the Gospels. I mean, besides Jesus, one of the bigger heroes here where Jesus says, man, look at this guy's faith, was a Roman official, was a Roman uh, soldier. And so verse 10, so does Jesus heal the guy? Of course he does. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So the centurion was right. Jesus didn't need to come over. He didn't need to lay hands on him. He didn't. He can just speak the word from anywhere, and uh, the servant would be healed. Um, Jesus controls the universe the way this centurion controls men, and he knew it, and he was right. And I love that it's stated so plainly. Like It's almost like an afterthought. And then, of course, Jesus healed the guy. Matthew adds that the man was healed, or the servant, or the slave. It doesn't say man or woman, but anyway, was healed the, the exact moment when Jesus spoke these words. Now, this is a really interesting story, and there's uh, a couple of ways we can go with this, but imagine for a second that uh, you were reading the news. You know, you open up your Apple News app or Google News or whatever you do. Um, uh, I read The Economist a lot. So imagine I open up The Economist one day, and there's a story about Uh, a general in Afghanistan who took his troops and then in the cover of night, in the freezing snow, I think it snows in Afghanistan. I mean, I think it's always pretty hot, but they have mountains there, right? Anyway, in the snow, uh, crosses a river at night in order to attack a group of uh, mercenaries uh, very early on Christmas morning. Now, hopefully, if you went to junior high and you remember history class, if you read that story, you'd think to yourself, wow, that sounds an awful lot like George Washington uh, crossing the Delaware River, (laughs) right? Well, this story of Jesus is just like that. It's supposed to make us think of of another healing by another prophet. So it's the story of Naaman, the, uh, the Syrian. And so we talked about this already before, and we read a little bit of it, but I want to read to you. Um, I want to jump back. So, uh, you know, scroll back in your apps or flip back in your Bibles. We're going to go to 2 Kings um, chapter 5. And like we've talked about Naaman before, but let's look at this whole story because I want you to see the similarities here with Naaman and this centurion. All right. Um, uh, 2 Kings 5. Naaman, commander of the army 
of the king of Syria was a great man with, uh, with his master and high in favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and thus, uh, thus spoke, and so spoke the girl um, from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So the story is that there's this dude, and he's not a very good guy, right? And he's the Syrians were um, the world power at the time. They were the bullies, and they were constantly uh, at war and almost picking on the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, you know, these were the, I mean, the Syrians were kind of the bad guys. Um, although God was using the Syrians to punish the Israelites, so, it, you know, it gets complicated. But anyway, from the eyes of somebody in Israel, this is a, this is a bad guy, right? He's the leader of the enemy's army who has uh, been hurting the people of Israel. So verse 6. Oh, wait, so the story goes, one day he, just to recap real quick, one day he was, you know, they were raiding in Israel and they, they took some slaves after the battle, and one of them was this girl, this Israelite girl. And when uh, Naaman had leprosy, which leprosy in the Old Testament covered a multitude of diseases, not just Hansen's disease. And we've talked about leprosy before. Um, but either way, this guy, nobody wanted to go near this guy. His life was ruined. So she says, oh, there's this prophet in Israel who, um, she doesn't say his name here, but Elisha is his name. And uh, he can heal you. So you should probably go see this guy. It's just like everybody says, you know, Seinfeld has that bit about, you know, everybody says, oh, you should go see my doctor. He's the best. And then Seinfeld goes, well, somebody's finishing at the bottom of these classes, right? Not every doctor is the best doctor in the whole world. Anyway, so she thinks that her doctor is the best. Um, verse 6. So he, he heads to Israel. He brings all this stuff. And he brought the letter of the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent you, uh, sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure him of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and sent to the king, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So the king finds out that Naaman has come to be healed and he's brought all this stuff and he's demanding to be healed. And the king freaks out and says, man, I can't heal this guy. You know, I, I don't have this power, but Elijah says, don't worry about it, dude, send him over to me and uh, I'll take care of him. Verse nine. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Seems easy enough, right? But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Fafar... Uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away. Uh, so he turned and went away in a rage. So I love this story. Here's what happens. He goes to Elijah's house. Elijah doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends his, his you know, his uh, buddy out. And he says, hey, here's what you got to do. Just go down to the Jordan there. You know, 
Here's the banks of the Jordan. Just go down the hill there, uh, wash seven times, come out, you'll be fine. And Naaman is proud, so he's angry. What? You know, this he didn't even come out to meet me. Right? There's no humility with Naaman here at the beginning. Um, and so, you know, he gets super upset. And then verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great... Uh, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Would you not do it? He, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, this is Elijah, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it back, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord, but Yahweh. And in this matter, anyway, he goes on. So basically, uh, he takes it, you know, some some uh, the the dirt back and he builds an altar back um in in Syria. So he's healed, he finally he uh he he listens to the word of the prophet and then um you know, he he's humbled and um he becomes a follower of Yahweh. Okay, so do you see the similarities there between that story and uh the one that we just read in Luke 7? there's a lot of crossover here. Now, there's a couple of ways that when I was looking at this Luke 7 text here about the centurion, there's a lot of ways that we could go. Um, The first would be to compare Jesus and Elisha, right? How Jesus is a greater prophet than Elisha. And we're actually going to do, that's the whole sermon next week, so you don't even have to watch next week's sermon now. You know the whole point. Jesus is better than Elijah and Elisha. The second way that we can go with this is to compare the centurion and Naaman. We have two unlikely foreign military commanders who receive blessings uh, that one would think are only meant for the people of God, right? So we have this theme of the outsiders coming in, and but we've already done that sermon in the book of Luke. Now, if I was just teaching these, um, these verses from Luke 7, that's what the sermon would be about. God bringing the outsiders into his kingdom. But we've, I don't want to say we've beat that horse to death, although that is a major theme in the book of Luke. But we've talked about that already in the flow of the book of Luke. So I'm not going to hit all those same points again. Today, specifically, I want to even narrow the focus more and talk about the faith of these two men, right? The faith of the centurion is greater than the faith of Naaman. Look at Naaman. Naaman's request uh, to be healed isn't out of love for another person, right? It's out of self-preservation. He has leprosy. Uh, and he needs to be healed. Naaman shows very little love uh, or respect for God's people, right? He sees them as a means to an end. Most likely, um, he had led armies against, like I said, against the people of God in these raids. Uh, Naaman comes to Elijah with a great entourage and money and all this stuff, lots of fanfare. There's, There's you know, he's too proud even to follow the instructions at first. Think about that. They have to talk him into being healed because it, 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 it hurt his pride. The positive, though, is at the end of the, the, the ordeal, he obeys, he is healed, and then he is in awe of God. And he, he leaves with a thankful heart. And um, there's more to that story if you want to go read what happens with uh, Elisha's servant and Naaman and everything. It's, it's kind of interesting. But anyway, so that's the faith of Naaman. Then there's the centurion. 
Let's look at the faith of the centurion. The first thing we read about him is that he shows love for another person. This whole request was not about himself. It was about saving another. He used his social capital, right, to benefit somebody else. He called in his favor. I built the synagogue. I, you know, he had favors come in his way. And what did he use those favors for? Right, was to save the life of a slave that most of the Romans would not have cared anything about. We see humility in the heart of the centurion, right? They say, oh, he's worthy, he's worthy. And he says, no, I'm, no, I'm not, right? That's a glimpse of his heart because humility really at its core is seeing yourself um, for who you really are, standing next to the perfect holiness of God. Pride comes from comparing yourself to other people in order to boost your ego, right? And so humility and pride are kind of those opposites. Pride is like... Um, Pride is like those kids that go to Harvard and, you know, in their hometown, um, they're always the smartest kid around, right? They're the valedictorian of their high schools. Um, you know, they, they give speeches, they get straight A's, they take, uh, you know, those AP classes, but then they get to Harvard and where everybody else is exactly like that too. And so all of a sudden now comparing themselves to the students around them doesn't really do them any good because where they were the smartest kids back home, um, now they're just average. Now they're just dumb, right? The Harvard humbles them. Here's the thing. This centurion, what's so great about him is that he realized that before he got to Harvard. That's what's so amazing, right? He was humble because he knew who God was and he knew who Jesus was. Um, the next thing that we see in his faith is he acted um, in faith without ever meeting Jesus in person. Um, you know the story of Doubting Thomas where the, the disciples meet Jesus after the resurrection, and uh, one guy's missing, Thomas, and he says, oh, I'm not going to believe until I see Jesus. And then Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, dude, look at my hands and my side and my feet and all that. Well, in, John, in the end of that story, it says this. Jesus said to him, this is uh, John 20. Jesus uh, said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's the centurion, right? What basis did he have to approach Jesus, right? He'd probably just heard stories. He'd met eyewitnesses, right? That was enough for him. He didn't, he didn't go out to meet Jesus, nothing. He knew Jesus could heal from afar. That's the next thing too. He had confidence in the work of Jesus. Think of the reality of his situation, right? His slave is nearing death um, in a world with very little medicine and very little hope. And so this person is going to die. But the centurion tells Jesus, look, just say the word and, you know, my guy will be healed. It'll, he'll be fine. That's confidence, right? He acts with confidence. The next thing we see is he asks for grace. He says, I'm unworthy, Jesus. I'm not worthy. But anyway, you should heal my servant. Could you, could you do that for me? Right? I don't deserve this, but would you do it anyway? He's not asking in his own merit. The only conclusion here is that he's asking for grace because he knows who he is, but he still asks for God's blessing anyway. Um, and then next is uh, he, um, the last thing we have here is that he understands Jesus's authority. Remember that the first sin uh, was was usurping the authority of God, taking his role as the Lord of our own lives and making that role right our own. And one aspect of the faith of faith is saying to God, you are the one with authority and I'm not right in the world, in my life, all of it, you are the Lord. And so boiled down the faith of the centurion is really amazing, but we can really kind of just boil it down to these two aspects. Like what is real faith? 
the centurion shows us. It's knowing who you are and knowing who Jesus really is. That's what we see here with the centurion. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's unworthy. And he knows that Jesus is the one with the ultimate authority. He is the king. And so that's the lesson. Well, what do we do with that information? Well, is the point here then, okay, go and be more like the centurion and less like Naaman? Well, sure, that's the point. But how? How does one have have greater faith? How does one uh, live with more humility, right? How do we how do we live like the centurion? You have to understand this to begin with, that faith, even faith itself, is a gift from God. Um, Martin Luther said this, faith, the work of uh, the Holy Spirit, fashions a different mind and different attitudes and makes an altogether new human being. Therefore, faith is an active, difficult, and powerful thing. If we want to truly consider uh, what it really is, uh, it is something done uh, it is something done to us rather than something we do for it changes the heart and the mind. That's the key. It's something Martin Luther, the reformer said, faith is something that is done to us. Faith is something that God does to us, not something that we do for God. Let me read to you from Romans, Romans twelve three. for by uh, the grace given me, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, uh, than he ought to think. Uh, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's the key. According to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Or one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible, right? Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your faith, even the idea of you believing, is not your own doing. The faith of the centurion was not his own doing. Before faith, the beginning of that chapter, Ephesians 2.1, it says you were dead in your, in your sins. Right? You were dead. Spiritually, you were dead. And it's like the story of Ezekiel's dry bones from the prophet Ezekiel, where God shows him this vision of a valley. And, uh, you know, it's a bunch of bones, a bunch of dead people. And then, uh, you know, God brings the, all of a sudden, these, these dead bones get up and then the flesh comes on, you know, and they come back to life, right? And the whole idea is that's a picture of what God does for us spiritually, right? He is the one who takes dead bones and he turns them into life. You didn't muster up faith and then bring your dead heart back to life. God came down with those little paddles, right? And, and he brought you back to life. He breathed spiritual life into spiritual death. And do you, so then to apply that to us then, do you see how that hits us? Do you see how that hits you and me? Is your faith what you want it to be? That's the question today. Are you as close to our king as you would like to be? Do you trust him the way that you would like to trust him? Are you satisfied with him the way that you would like to be? Probably not. And so what do you do? You ask for more faith. Uh, Calvin, another reformer, said this, even though we have only a little spark of grace, let us not lose courage. Rather, let us pray to God that he may add uh Add to this little which he has begun, that he may make us to believe, and that he may confirm us until we are brought to perfection, from which we are still very far. So the idea is, look, you do. You have this little seed. You have this little spark of faith. But to grow that faith, what you need to do is 
not just suck it up and have more faith. You need to ask God to continue to grow your faith. It's like one of my other favorite parts, you know, okay, I have a lot of faith. I always say this. I have my favorite part of the Bible. You know why? Because the whole thing's pretty good, right? Uh, But another one of my favorite stories from the book of Mark, after the transfiguration, Jesus comes down the mountain and there's the father and he has the son who uh, is possessed by the demon. And he's like, ah, we tried all this stuff. We can't get this demon out of him, you know. And he says to Jesus, like, you know, um, uh, you know, if you will, can you heal him? And Jesus is basically, he's like, if, what do you mean if? Of course I can do it, right? And then the guy says, I love this phrase, you know, I believe, but help my unbelief. That should be the posture of all of us as Christians. This should be the posture of your heart as a follower of King Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I put my whole faith in you, but I don't love you enough. I don't trust you enough. I don't have enough faith. I'm proud. I'm selfish. I'm not as much like the centurion as I would like to be. So please bless me. Give me more love for you. Give me more trust. Give me more faith. Make me more like this guy, right? This positive example that we read about in Luke chapter 7. Because on my own merit, I can't do it. I can never muster up the faith to be like this guy. Only God can turn me into him. And so change my heart, Lord. That's the message that we want to have as individual members of the porch. We want to be a a group of people who constantly cry out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray. So, Lord, that is our prayer, that we, we do believe in you, we do trust you, and we love you, and we want to serve you as Lord. But we don't love you enough, we don't trust you enough. We don't have enough faith. So, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to take, uh, like Calvin said, right, take the little seed of faith that we have and help it to bloom and help it to grow um, and help it to become, you know, just this mighty, this mighty faith. That's what we want, Lord. Not just enough faith to get us into heaven, but enough faith to help us withstand Um, Like we talked about in the sermon a couple weeks ago, withstand the storms of this life. We want to build our life on your foundation. But to do that, we need you to give us the faith. So we humbly ask you for that now. We love you so much. We thank you for everything that you're doing in our world. We thank you for everything you're doing in our church. We thank you for everything you're doing in our lives. We, We give ourselves to you now. Amen.